0: Gentlemen, let us
1: begin. Uh, Tonight, I brought in the heavy, the big guns to help us discuss a subject that is really uh, overwhelming to a lot of us. Stephen brought it up and he's about the most well-versed guy that you could ever get to talk about historical things, especially like the historical beginning of hate uh, that's going on maybe in the Middle East or in other areas or historically wherever it's happening. But he talked about how hate It was he was talking about the deformative quality of hate and what it does to a man and how it causes us to live different and treat people differently. And we don't know enough about the history of these other countries like Stephen does to speak on a wider range. So I thought that we would talk about some of the personal things in our own lives, man, where we saw that. Uh, we were taught a thing. I loved where Steven said that, you know, a young man is the perfect fertile ground to plant these kinds of things in. And in my head, man, I'm really going, you know, it'll last longer than a law because a law could get changed. It'll long last it, it'll it'll last longer than any kind of a a wound that a person can receive in war. But this idea of hate when it's planted in the in the heart of a boy, like it can carry on and be propagated into his children and his children's children and go on and on and on and have its own life. So I think that's where we'll start and kind of go. And, and I know that uh, it's, I don't know where it'll go, but we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. So I brought in Jake, Kim that has been joining us
2: for the last few weeks. And then I'll
1: let him introduce himself, but I also brought in,
2: I, I believe I'm formally known as producer Jay, but I'm now realizing that that is confusing. It's confusing. With Confused me. Oh. Confused me the first time he said it. Yeah. All right. So I got to change that. We may that. need it. Yeah, we'll work on that. But, no, but he, needs just,
0: to, he needs to keep his anonymity. Right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah.
2: It's my call name.
1: But we have Jonas yeah. with us tonight. Oh, no, you just. Yeah. Well, Jonas is our producer and uh, he's going to join us at the table tonight to kind of rescue this whole episode because we are completely unversed on these international things, but we do know our own lives and we knew how. And we know how hate has affected our own lives. Mm-hmm. So
2: we'll we'll jump in, man,
1: and kind of uh, dig around and see where it goes.
2: I, I want to start poking and prodding. Anthony, I mean, I, I feel like you have the most- Hate? obvious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I, a hateful guy, man. I feel like you have the most obvious tie to this subject that you've discussed before in that you were instilled a hatred of white people.
1: Yeah. You know, growing up, As early as I can remember. And it's and, you know, I was thinking about why did she tell me some of these things? And I'm thinking about, you know, even the Palestinian people or the Israeli people, why are they sharing these things with their children or with the wider group? And I think it boils down to there is a fear that somehow their child may be taken advantage of. And for my mom, man, as early as I can remember, honestly, she she trained me to not trust white people. Hmm. You don't you don't trust them. You don't hang around them. You don't you don't give them more information than you need to give them. They're in control of everything. Just all these, you know, normal kinds of racist things that everybody says. But she told me a thing that really stuck to me. She said, you, you know, you have to be twice as good to get half the credit from a white person. And it really made me understand, man, that, you know, no matter how hard you try as a black person, white people were always going to think less of you and more of people that look like them. And generally speaking, man, I don't know how that really bears out in life. Honestly, Jay, I don't know, Hmm. because my personal experiences, I haven't had these hard moments with people of other ethnicities. I grew up with uh, black people. I grew up with Spanish people and I grew up with a smaller sliver of white people. But we were all the same Mm -hmm. and we treated each other and, you know, we'd be bad to each other and be angry with each other and fight each other and treat each other well. I mean, it wasn't a thing that was tied to race, but yet and still, I made it into my 20s with this huge distrust of white people. Now, I need to give some context to that, too, because I was living a life that was 100 percent illegal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was I was selling drugs. I was into a lot of things, theft and stealing and robbing and, you know, just all these different things, man, that were contrary to the law. And it just so happened, man, that all the law officers at this time and generally speaking at that time were white. So they just kind of fulfill this thing in my life where you can't trust white people. And the white man's bringing you down. The white man is bringing me down. But yeah. what it was, was that I was contrary to the law mm-hmm. and those people that were in place to uphold the law happened to be white. So it kind of reinforced the lie that I had been given, man.
2: So that's, that's
1: the beginning of the premise of me and hating white people.
2: Yeah. That's good context. I'm, I thought about that, I think, when I heard Stephen's episode first. I was like, oh, yeah, Anthony, I feel like he has pretty direct ties to this subject. And, like, I feel like, Jay, with what you and I were talking about, I feel like it's a little fuzzier for us. Yeah. Like, and what I was thinking earlier was Stephen's, Stephen chose an intense word to center this whole thing around. (laughs) Hate hate is an intense word, man. man. And would you, okay, so in everything you just described would you say that you were handed a hatred of white people or were you handed a prejudice against white people or you were know, you handed a I'm gonna a- I'm gonna answer your question I
1: think that my mom hated white people mm. because she grew up in a time where she didn't have to read about things that The white community or she could look at the white community and what they had did, you know, civil rights and all these kinds of things. And I don't know that what honestly, I don't know what direct contact it had on my mom because we never really discussed it. But it was it was a general uh, don't trust white people. White people are bad. And just, you know, and it wasn't actually Now that I'm thinking, man, it wasn't just white people. She had the same idea about Spanish people and Mexican people and people from you know, Hispanic countries, man, that they were coming here and getting a benefit that none of the black people were, were able to get. So new people would come over that, were, that would come on their own and would get the benefit of these things, you know, the government assistance and this and that. So I, I don't know, man. I, I, I believe that she taught me to hate white people and uh, have a disdain for them and a distrust for them.
2: It's interesting in the sense that, she like in her head she had legitimate reason yeah because i assume she firsthand had experienced what it was like before civil rights and when she was not treated like say someone who crosses the border and becomes a citizen and immediately just gets the benefits she w- was here all along and did not have the benefits and blamed <laughs> white people for that
1: yeah you know, this this idea of, of immigrants coming into the country, like it's alive and well right now, man. It's, oh, it's yeah. not something that died out with my mom's generation. You know, and as we just sit here talking through this, man, I think about even the current culture, man, with how immigrants are coming in and, you know, in Texas and all these border communities, and then they they said enough and they're going to these, sending them to other countries. Now other, other states and other, you know, places are getting an idea of what these border states have been complaining about all the time. It's just that it's not that you don't want people to come in, but it's just the influx and it overwhelms all the systems and policies and available kind of uh, benefit that can be given. But yes, my mom did teach me that. But to bring it into today's kind of this moment in today's history, you know, I think that sentiment is alive and well. And and n- neither of you ever feel that that um people are coming in from other countries or having the benefit that you never got, or I'm having to work for something that
0: someone else has been given. None of that. I mean, I'm here because my parents immigrated to Korea (laughs) to get better. I mean, not better opportunities, but to give me a better life, you know, give me my sister a better life. So I don't have any of that for me. it, it. I could, understand what hatred does to a young man because I've been a young man so much. So that like, it's so important to me that we have our control room because, because a lot of times what I do, and I think a lot of men do this is once you realize the hatred of your youth was foolishness and was robbing you and deforming you of something, you immediately make believe it never happened. (laughs) You know, like, I go ahead and I'm like, look, this is my viewpoint. And, oh, it was just my viewpoint all along, the whole time, you know? And I didn't have this hatred in me. But examining those things and examining the things that Stephen asked us to examine in our control room, you get to see it and you realize, like, yeah, I know what that feels like. I know how how it corrupted my soul for a long time. But... It is also difficult for me because any hatreds that I had, I kind of picked up on my own and I kind of kind of prided myself in a lot of it when I was younger. So I don't know. Like, I, I understand the topic that we're talking about. I just don't have somebody instilling it in me, you know, other than like culture, media. and But that's part of it. That's part of it but i i can't really pinpoint yeah something i have to really sit and like examine but yeah i think everybody we can kind of relate like we understand what hatred does there's that analogy about like anytime you hold a grudge against somebody you're actually taking the poison yourself you know kind of you're taking that poison
1: yeah you're taking the poison ex- and yeah. expecting them to die yeah mm.
2: i think about well, first, I'm curious, you were given an example earlier about the Mets and the Yankees that seemed pretty personal <laughs> for you. So...
0: <laughs> that was something that just developed because I was a hardcore Yankee fan.
2: But why were you a hardcore Yankee well, fan? Well,
0: because my dad was following and Don Mattingly's career. There it is. That. What, but, but
2: it's like, the, it, ha- it, the fandom was handed down. It
0: was handed down, but like he did not instill the things that I turned it into. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because... I was observing, you know, the Met fans around me. And I was like, <laughs> say it. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Give it some the context. Say it, man. What you, I was, like, you were observing what, I was like, they just tend to be, you know, lower class. And I, I was really thought that for a long time. And yeah. it took my, uh, you know, my wife, but we were dating at the time. She turned to me. She's like, you actually believe that, don't you? And I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> it's like, wow. oh, Yeah. My opinion of another baseball team's fans, you know, it was hatred, kind of like it was looking at people as less than, and that was actually, but I, that wasn't my father instilling it. That was me yeah, you keep, running with it.
1: Yeah, you keep going back to that. So yeah, yeah. we we know that your father was great.
0: I think the cultural the the culture of being a Yankee fan kind of turned this, that into it, mm. and it's just it gets acquired through mob mentality when you're there at Yankee stadium in the bleachers. You, mm-hmm. you just, well,
2: it, you hit on something just now that I feel like is important for the rest of the discussion. And I, I feel like there needs to be some sort of definition around hate yeah. for this. Cause mm. it's like, how, how severe, how far do you want to take that word? Do you want to take that as viewing people as less than, or do you want to take that as these people shouldn't exist? Mm. You know, like mm. though, I think, that word is used very liberally in that sense, man. That's a
1: great. That's a great point because I think in the context that Stephen is using it, it is these people should not exist, mm-hmm. and I don't know that that's alive and well and predominant, really, in 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 my personal circles or the culture or the, that that's really around me. Right. So that's a great distinction. I appreciate you dropping that in there.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I mean that obviously with the Palestinian. Israeli feud right now. Like that is a very real sentiment where people on both sides, there are people on both sides of that spectrum saying the other side should not exist. Yeah. That is very real. But then you look at, I don't know, sports Yankees fans, or you look at, um, Yankees and Mets fans. Yeah. Right. Or, or just your, your more subtle prejudices against be it other Ethnicities in your town, other socioeconomic no. classes, other religious groups,
0: um mind you, one of my coworkers, we work great together, Red Sox fan, and like I come to actually you know cherish his friendship. You can see so, through. I see, but you, you ev- can see past yeah, his alliance with the to Red Sox. Work wearing a Red Sox hat, <laughs> and I'll just, I'll just blank it out in my mind. Like it's not a Red Sox hat That's when I'm good. looking
1: at. It. Now, what about this, Jay? <laughs> what about this? Honestly, man, and I'm just thinking. I'm reformed, guys. I don't know. What about this? What if I'm a Mets fan, <laughs> hearing you talk right now, and it's reinforcing my opinion of Yankees fans?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've Ooh. yeah, we're. Because we're kind of elitists. Yeah. As, kinda... as a
1: Yankee fan right now, man, you are saying that as a Yankee fan, I'm just, you know, by definition, higher class and everyone around me and those that compete against me are lower class. Yeah. It's those little bitty subtleties, man, that if I'm a real serious Mets fan and I pick up on that, maybe I begin a general hate. Yeah. Of Yankee fans. <laughs> and
0: hate breeds hate, man. And, you
1: know, but it is those small moments like that or these small unspoken things or small undefined things. And that's why I'm glad that you stopped and defined what we yeah. mean by hate, because I don't know that there are Yankee fans and Met fans that go, you shouldn't exist. no. So I, I don't need. I don't even know if that qualifies for what we're talking about. But it's a good place. But we for might us to get be. into
0: a fist fight in the, in the <laughs> parking
1: lot. There's there's some other areas, man, that we find ourselves like not in harmony with other groups. Yeah. One is politically, and, and oh yeah, and. You, you can cut out what, what doesn't go well. here. No, nah, let it fly. You know, politically, <laughs> man, we have some strong political ideas. And I know that J. Kim and I are probably on different ends of the spectrum of political ideas, man. Because if I'm honest, man, I probably more closely align to the Republican side of things. I don't call myself a Republican. I like a lot of the Republican ideas, man. I like a lot of uh, conservative ideas. At the same time, man, I like some of the liberal ideas, man, in that, providing for others and those people that can't provide for themselves. But somewhere in the middle, man, is you have to be accountable for yourself. So knowing that about me, you know, and us being friends, man, how's it, how's it resonate with you, with your idea politically?
0: I, I look at both of us and we're pretty much centrist. Like you might yeah. be on the, on the right slightly, and I might lean a little left, but I like the way Steven talks about it. You know, just either end of the spectrum is nonsense. Like it is, it is bile hatred. Those are the areas that the ideas don't work and they're bad ideas. Yeah. The centrist viewpoint is the one that, you know, the statesman that would get things done.
2: Yeah. It's like the further away you walk from the center toward one side, the harder it will be for you to actually see, relate to communicate with the side you're walking away from. Cause you're one, you're, you're getting further away. And like when you put that distance there, it starts to make it really difficult for you to even engage with that other side. And so you, as you choose a side and walk toward it, you are now aligning yourself with that side and alienating yourself from the other side. Now, I think there are some principles that you should walk toward. Like Steven talks about a lot, having that fortress of principles in place. Like there are going to be things you walk toward that, divide you from other people that are worth standing for. But at the same time, if you find yourself walking one way in a way that you lose touch with the other side, I feel like that's where you start getting into trouble because now you can't see, you can't see the other side anymore. And therefore you're going to resent what you don't know, resent what you don't see, resent the other side because they aren't where you are. Does that kinda of make sense it, like it does? Here's the the
1: fear that I have when I see this happening in real life. Like for two sides that are polar opposites to come together, I always say, man, that there has to be some recognition or acknowledgement of the other side's grief or other side's beef. Mm-hmm. Like if, if if I tell grief you, and beef, baby. Yeah. If <laughs> if I tell you that because historically what white people have done, it has caused Uh, an environment where black people for some period of time had less of an opportunity to achieve the same things. Like, I think, I think that most rational people could agree with that, that there was a time when white people ran everything, black people were slaves They had the opportunity that black people didn't have, and they had X number of years to accomplish something that black people didn't. Mm -hmm. And now black people are trying to catch up and go after those same opportunities. I think that most people could look at that and go, "Okay," But when you make it personal and go, hey, you, Jonas, Mm -hmm. because your people did this thing to my people you had an opportunity that I didn't have. And I want that same opportunity when we make it more personal, man. I think that's where the conflict comes in. But at some point, man, there are some things that have to be recognized and acknowledged for us to even begin to talk and have a conversation, especially if one side is an offended party. Like you're hoping that the other side will give you something. And and I think that with the Israeli and the and the Palestinian conflict, man, I don't hear it a lot, man. but. You know, J. Kim, you mentioned that, you know, if you look at it, man, the U.N. agrees that that Israel is committing some atrocities in the in the fight uh, to reconcile whatever has happened to them. But there's Israeli people looking at the Palestinian side going, yeah, and the bombs that you're dropping on our community has caused this drama or this trauma and killed people in our, you know, cities But until we're ready to say, hey, I did this and I did this, I don't know how we get past it because I don't know how you ever come to a common ground, man, and overcome hate. Because the whole point of this podcast is, is, yeah, these these things exist in our lives. But what do we do with it? How do we get past it? What's the steps to reconcile two people that hate each other or two people groups that hate each other? And I think that the number one thing is, is we have to acknowledge any any fleck. Of what we see as a truth in what this person's gripe is, we can't just be so afraid to acknowledge it that we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot and take away our legitimate argument by saying, "I don't see that." I don't see that. Does yeah. any of that make sense? Yeah, and that also makes total sense.
0: Also, finding a common ground, finding finding that common understanding, a lot of times brings people. That's why the centrist view. That's why the that's where the compromises happen and people can actually move forward in their relationship. And the further you get from the center, every word out of your mouth will enrage this person. Mm-hmm. And if, if that's what you've got, if you got you fill a room, let's say like a building, like a Congress, but you fill it. <laughs> and people are just saying the extreme thing on this side, the extreme thing on this side, and nobody is meeting in the middle then all it's going to be is people arguing with each other and nothing's going to get done. You know, the economy's not going to get fixed. Nothing's <laughs> going to happen. And I see that in, like, groups that, that hate each other or when we look at it, like, when we th- talk about it in church, you to look at the gospel, like, you know, we have different viewpoints. And if we're bringing up this and we're bringing up this political stance or this thing or this cultural thing this deep embedded hatred we're never gonna be able to sit and go we agree on jesus you know yeah we agree on the gospel and that's what unifies us and i feel like hatred being instilled at a young age it makes it difficult to not be yelling at different ends of the spectrum
2: that's good
1: I, I just thought of a, of a person or a thing or a moment that
0: I did have real hate in my heart.
1: And I want to share it openly here. And if, if you've listened to the podcast in the past, you know that my father and I were estranged from each, from each other for many years. But this was a person that I definitely hated. Like I hated the thought of this person. And there were real wounds and things that he did and said to me in my life to make me hate him. And if I track back to the beginning, I remember being a very young child, probably six or eight years old, needing a coat. He came over to my house and you've heard this story, producer Jay. And Jay, I I think that you've probably heard it, too. But my mom's pleading with him for some money to buy me a coat. And he turns to her and he goes, you know, he never calls me until he needs something. Now, I know that that was something between the two of them, but he spoke that about me. And I carried that in my heart, man, to say You know, I'm never going to ask this guy for anything. I'm never going to pretend like I need anything from him. But it planted a seed in me to hate him. So this is eight or nine years old. I I go all the way through life. Don't see him four or five times, man. And finally, when I'm 30 years old or 30-something years old, my mom calls me and says, hey, I'm coming to visit you in Nashville. I'm bringing a friend with me. And I go, great. Who is it? And she goes, you're dead. And I go, no, he's not coming to my house. And she goes, well, I'm bringing your dad and we'll be here X, Y, Z. And I'm like, he's not allowed in my house. But she goes, Tony, I'm bringing your dad. And at this point, I know every son towards his mother, he knows when he's lost a battle. And I knew I had lost that battle. I knew that he was coming. He comes, man, and they show up and I'm fretting this moment the whole time. He walks in the house. He sits down beside me. I shake his hand. And everybody in the house, my mom, my wife, my small child, they all disappear and go somewhere. And it leaves me and this guy that I hate looking at each other. And I just go right in on him and tell him all the reasons why I hate him through my whole life. You weren't there. You never taught me how to play baseball. You didn't teach me how to tie a tie. You weren't around to support me financially. I just had questions about dating that I didn't have anybody ask. Just all these things and just let it fly for 30 or 40 minutes. And he simply turned to me and he goes, I get it. You know, he owned it all. He didn't fight it all. So something in the, the point of I'm, of what I'm talking about is the way to break through hate is in that moment, immediately, I didn't hate him anymore. Mm. Mm. And so that's what I'm telling you, man. When there are obvious truths between two groups that hate each other and one of them is expressed if he could have sat there and go, that's not true. I didn't do any of that. And mm-hmm. I wasn't this and that. And we would have gone on and I would have continued to hate him. But because he owned it all and acknowledged it all, I was able to release it all. And we we ultimately had a great relationship and reconcile. So if if we're looking for ways to get past this hate, I'm, I just feel adamantly and very strongly about if there's something that is presented to you from the other side, even if you disagree with it, but you know it has some vein of truth. The best way is to acknowledge whatever simple vein of truth that you can find in whatever wild, outlandish statement that they might make, as a as a catalyst, man to begin to recover from this hate. Because if if we feel unheard, we're we're gonna refuse to hear, and that's where you're talking about Jay Kim, is all the no or producer Jay that all the good stuff happens in the middle. And mm-hmm. Maybe it was you, Jay. But but how do we get to the middle man if we're constantly bickering and refusing to admit anything that makes us look bad? Because I think that's the big
2: fear: is I don't want to admit to anything that makes me look bad. That makes me think of this uh, this advertisement I saw recently for an organization that I've become familiar with. Uh, it's called FIRE, and it stands for uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Mm. It's really interesting. They they're kind of touting the freedom of speech flag right now as things get crazier and people get in more trouble for saying things. Yeah. And, uh, this advertisement I saw was for this organization and they were basically, their stance was people need to be able to say crazy things to have conversations. Like when you start silencing people by saying you can't say that it prohibits, conversation from happening and what exactly what you're talking about. So there's this black man who was telling his story in the video. And he said, I may get some of the details wrong, but he said, at a certain point I started to make it my mission to um, reconcile with KKK members. Mm. He was like, I would go find active, (laughs) active KKK groups or members and uh, what do you call that? Chapters? I yeah, I think it's a chapter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he was like, I would go and I would try to start having conversations with these people. Whoa. And he said, rather than me, like, it's pretty obvious that these guys are hateful and that they want nothing more than to see me gone. But I, I stuck around To ask why. Like, Mm. I stuck around to get past the inflammatory responses and get underneath that and try and hear them out. And basically, hey, if you hate me so much, tell me why. Yeah, man. And he was like, I very quickly got to the bottom of a lot of these people's worldviews. And it quickly came to the surface that there was not a legitimate reason for them hating me. And it was astounding. I forget how many he had. Let's just say it was like 200. He was like, I have over 200 robes in my storage room or whatever from men who have given it up. Shut up. Because I was willing to just sit down and hear them out. Mm. He was like, that changed their mind more than anything. Yeah. More than me fighting against their worldview, fighting against their twisted belief system. It was me sitting down and saying, hey, why don't you tell me more about? why you guys hate black people. And it, I I was, it was like a YouTube video and I had, was given this advertisement and I stopped and was like, what did I just watch? That was incredible. Man, that's great. And it was, I, I think about that a lot. I really encourage people to go check that out because it uh, it was a story I had just never heard before. And I yeah. was like, this guy is changing people's lives and he is erasing hate, generations of hate because he's willing to sit down and hear people out, even though these people's out ideas are outlandish and bitter and twisted. He's willing to sit down and have the maturity and the composure to say, Hey, let's get to the bottom of this.
1: Think about how many times that he had to hear the N word. Oh my God. When he had these conversations. I know. Man. And, and this conversation we're having now is great because it's making me think about a really good friend, JT McCraw. He says that one of the most Impactful moments, man, in our relationship and with other African American or Black people, was having the freedom to say something that potentially could offend them, and them refusing to be offended because they understood the relationship that they had. Yeah, you have to you have to create a space, man, where you can say things and and risk the opportunity of offending someone, but feel safe enough. To be able to ask that question or make that statement. And you know, JT came to came to realize a lot of things that he grew up with, you know, growing up and going, man, how many more Mexicans are gonna get out of that truck?
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You that. guys are talking. Yeah, you did an episode on that. Yeah, That's right. You
1: know, and he used to hear that as a child and and he didn't realize that it really gave him an impression of Spanish people. Sure. And it was a negative impression, man. And and this is what I'm talking about. If if we're gonna lay down one good thing. And all of our rambling, I think that we need to recognize, man, what this guy did and what I'm telling you, man, is that if, if there is a vein of truth, we have to be able to recognize it and acknowledge it to this person because it will defuse some of the most high powered, passionate conversations. If we'll just go, that's true. Mm. And no matter how it makes us look. And I think a lot of times white people or black people, man, when when people have problems with us. We don't want to acknowledge anything that makes us look poorly because we're, we feel like that we're fueling their side of it. But what we can really do, man, is defuse their side of it by going, okay, that I see it, that, that part's true, but man, that's a great, that's a great opportunity for us all to look at a guy that's willing to go out there and he he's living by another principle that I live by is refusing to be offended, man, mm-hmm. you refuse to be offended, JT's principle was gather men around you where you can say stupid things and they won't get offended. So those are two things.
0: Yeah. I love that. That's all valuable. Yeah. I'd say also the part of that is refusing to fight. Facing somebody's attack with love would disarm them entirely because they're expecting you to throw a punch or something. And you're, they're expecting the response to be the the volatile response back and what ended like for instance if we're looking at something comparable to you know israel palestine for centuries japan and korea they're back and forth all the way from ancient dynasties they'd go occupy commit atrocities you know and then eventually japan would come occupy korea and Then it kept going back and forth. It would never end. The animosities would never end until, I mean, granted, because of something awful happened, Japan said, We don't have a military anymore. And that was the thing that made the cycle end. One side decided, We're done fighting. You know, we're done participating in this hatred, this, this, you know, this back and forth. And, that's the solution <laughs> is you have to not just let somebody trample you but to to live harmoniously you have to sort of compromise and and not get offended it, it it's the thing is is that well, it's, it is exhausting to do it's refusing to play the game yeah but it, it still is like if you're facing little aggressions and you just have to overlook them all like it does take a it does take an effect but like to be able to process it and be the kind of person where you can withstand that and then proceed to bring peace wherever you go that's the key you know to what you're saying there is like when somebody screams from the side that makes you in like insanely mad you decide to not react the way you want to react Yeah, Well, yeah, I'm curious
2: as we kind of wrap this up, like what, I think one of Stephen's main challenges was for men to examine what hatred they may have been handed in their own hearts. Like, I love the angle we're taking on attacking this or diffusing it from the outside, but like on the subject of overcoming personal or internal hatred or prejudice, let's say, let's, I would water that down and just say prejudice. Sure or judgments what can we
0: offer men in that realm i think a lot of it is well self-examination you know in your imagination going through you know what what do i believe that is you know prejudice that that is something wrong and surrounding yourself with people like when my wife asked me like you actually believe that don't you and then I had to look at what I had just said. I had to hear what I had. I had actually heard the words that were coming out of my mouth and realizing that they were ridiculous, mm. that they were preposterous. And that diffused that for me, that prejudice. We have blind spots and we need men in our lives. We need people in our lives who who identify them. But that's what I'm hearing from
2: you is building a community of people around you who can call you out in your unawareness or in your ignorance or yeah. arrogance. Like if you are surrounded by people who agree with you or who yell the same things you yell and, and dislike the same people you dislike, then you're ending up in a troubled place because you're only going to go further and deeper into that hatred. So surrounding yeah. yourself with people who can challenge that yeah, and yeah. pull you, start to ask Prodding questions to pull you out of hey what's actually at the bottom of that what's you made a very slanted comment about this person or, mm. or the way they looked or the way they or the the car they got out of or the side of town they live on like, or the baseball team that they follow yeah <laughs> don't even don't even get started on that um it's like hey what's behind what's beneath that mm.
1: yeah that's great you know I think another one is if there isn't a reoccurring accusation that's always thrown your way. Oh, yeah, that's. There may be a point in your life where you need to really sit down and go into the control room and go. Is there a possibility that this derogatory comment that's been labeled to me five, six times is actually true? To Mm -hmm. examine ourselves and to hear because, you know, your critics and people that don't like you are some of the most valuable people in your lives. Because they'll tell you things that your friends won't tell you. And if there is an accusation or some critique against you, especially a negative one that has come up four or five times, I think it would be one of the great goals or one of the great uh, rules of manhood to examine that in ourselves and go, is this really true about me? And if it is, to acknowledge it and then go and redeem it with those people. That's awesome well this is this is going on man for some time and it took a direction that we had no idea that it would take and it's all in in part to a producer Jay sitting down and asking the right kinds of questions I have not done myself any favors for editing this <laughs> yeah but good luck <laughs> but it's all being in part due to uh producer Jay sitting down man and chatting with us and asking us probing questions. And so I just want to thank you for doing that and helping us resolve some of this stuff in ourselves because when we sat down today, we had no idea where it would go or what we even thought about this hate. Uh, But I want to thank you for doing that. And as we examine these moments in our lives and surround ourselves with groups of men that are willing to call us out on these uh, blind spots in our lives and, and we need to add value to that and go, yes, I hear you. Tell me more. And if there are... Uh, foes or enemies or people that don't like you, and there's a repeated comment thrown towards you, man. You're you're a, a bipolar, or you're you know racist, or a you're, you're a bigot. You're yeah. a bigot. You know you're uh, self-absorbed. Whatever it is, man. If if it's been mentioned in relation to you more than three or four times, man, I think that there would be a real value in sitting down and asking yourself, is this actually true about me? Because until we acknowledge those things, we'll never grow up and we'll never dispel this hate that's in our heart. Because that's one of the great arts of great manhood.
0: To join the great man community or to book Stephen to speak at your man's event, go to greatman.tv. There, you'll also find incredible resources to help you become the great man you are made to be. The Great Man Podcast is a Wise Company production.